Chapter Twenty, Part One, of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, Part One, A Stout Heart to a Steep Hill. Quote, when a thing ceases to be a subject of controversy, it ceases to be a subject of interest. End quote. William Hazlitt. The noisy clamor of the world could not reach me through thick stone walls. Prison had been a quiet interim for reflection, for assembling past experiences and preparing for the future. The tempestuous season of agitation, courts and jails and shrieking and thumbing the nose, should now end. Heretofore, there had been much notoriety, and but little understanding. The next three steps were to be, first, education, then, organization, and finally, legislation. All were clearly differentiated, though they necessarily overlapped to a certain extent. I based my program on the existence in the country of a forceful sentiment which, if coordinated, could become powerful enough to change laws. Horses wildly careering around a pasture have as much strength as when harnessed to a plow, but only in the latter case can the strength be measured and turned to some useful purpose. The public had to be educated before it could be organized and before the laws could be changed as a result of that organization. I set myself to the task. It was to be a long one, because the press did not want articles stating the facts of birth control. They wanted news, and to them news still consisted of fights, police, arrests, controversy. One of the early essays in education was a moving picture dramatizing the grim and woeful life of the East Side. Both Blossom and I believed it would have value, and I continue to be of the same mind. He had not approved of the clinic and had declined to have anything to do with it, but was eager to join me in capitalizing on the ensuing publicity. Together we wrote a scenario of sorts, concluding with the trial. Although I had long since lost faith in my abilities as an actress, I played the part of the nurse and an associate of Blossoms financed its production. But before it could appear, Commissioner of Licenses George H. Bell ordered it suppressed. To prove the film mirrored conditions which called for birth control, we gave a private showing at a theater inviting some two hundred people concerned with social welfare. All agreed the public should see it, and signed a letter to that effect. Justice Nathan Bejour issued an injunction against interfering with its presentation. The moving picture theaters, however, fearful lest the breath of censure wither their profits, were too timid to take advantage of this. Of infinitely greater and more lasting significance than this venture was the Birth Control Review, which, from 1917 to 1921, was the spearhead in the educational stage. 
it could introduce a quieter and more scientific tone, and also enable me to keep in touch with people everywhere whose interest had already been evoked. Emotion was not enough. Ideas were not enough. Facts were what we needed, so that leaders of opinion who were articulate and willing to speak out might have authoritative data to back them up. The first issue of the review, prepared beforehand, had come out in February 1917, while I was in the penitentiary. It was not a very good magazine then. It had few contributors and no editorial policy. Anyone, sculptor, spiritualist, cartoonist, poet, freelance, could express himself here. The pages were open to all. In some ways, it was reminiscent of the old days of the woman rebel, when everybody used to lend a hand, always with this vital difference, that we held strictly to education instead of agitation. I had learned a little editorial knowledge from my previous magazine efforts, and now obtained a more professional touch from the newspaper men and women who gradually came in among them William E. Williams, formerly of the Kansas City Star, Walter A. Roberts, who later published the few issues of the American Parade, and Rob Parker, editor and makeup man. Among the associates were Jesse Ashley, Mary Noblock, and Agnes Smedley. That extraordinarily shy and mysterious woman, Agnes Smedley, had been born in a covered wagon of squatter parents, and though she had become a teacher in the California public schools, her early habits of thought remained with her. She was consistently for the underdog. The British government had suspected her of connection with the seditious activities of a group of Hindu students and persuaded the federal authorities to investigate. All they had been able to find on which to charge her were a few copies of family limitations. This brought her within our province, and when she was arraigned in New York, John Haynes Holmes procured her $10,000 bail. After her acquittal, she worked with us at various times until she left for post-war Germany. On this and other occasions, John Haynes Holmes a speaker second to none, brought the convincing force of his arguments and mind to our aid. By the shape of his head and the honesty of his eyes, you could recognize the practical idealist in this Unitarian minister. He never straddled issues. During the war, he said if one flag were to be hung out his church windows, then those of all nations should be flown. No peoples were enemies of his. Two numbers of the review had appeared when the United States entered the war, and Blossom and I fell out. He was an ardent Francophile, and like most masculine members of the intelligentsia, threw in his lot with the Allies. I wrote a pacifist editorial. He refused to run it and resigned. To Blossom, as to so many others, pacifism was automatically labeled pro-Germanism, 
on the old theory that he who is not for me is against me. I had already seen in Europe what propaganda could do to build up a war spirit, and prayed every morning when I awoke that I could keep my head clear and cool. I had heard the plaintive pleas of French mothers, but had talked also with German mothers. In the hearts of none had there been hatred or desire for their sons to kill other sons. I knew what I thought about the war. It was so outrageous I would not be mixed up in it. I still believe it was not only a dreadful thing in itself, a slaughter and waste of human life, but even more disastrous, it exterminated those who ought now be ruling our national destinies according to the pre-war liberality of thought in which they had been reared. We started at that time to walk backwards instead of forwards and have retreated steadily ever since. A fear of expressing opinions which then began to seep in has gradually helped to impose censorship and further intolerance. I was neither pro-ally nor pro-German, but, using common sense, was distressed at seeing German achievements torn into shreds. Intelligence in Germany had been focused on all fronts. She had the lowest illiteracy of any country and had invested heavily in mass education from which the rest of the world was benefiting at little cost. She had offered the best training for graduate students in medicine. Foreign travel had been accelerated by German linguists. Commerce had been able to carry on international contacts through German interpreters. Any foreign industry which had needed technical advice had usually employed a German scientist, engineer, or chemist who knew how to do his job and do it well. Germany could not continue this policy without wanting to receive some tangible return. I was convinced the primary cause of this war lay in the terrific pressure of population in Germany. To be sure, her birth rate had recently begun to decline, but her death rate, particularly infant mortality, had, through applied medical science, likewise been brought far down. The German government had to do something about the increase of her people. Underneath her rampant militarism, underneath her demand for colonies, was this driving economic force. She could hold no more and had to burst her bounds. Blossom's defection was one of the heartbreaking things that can creep into any endeavor, even the most idealistic. I have seen so many young crusaders come galloping to show me the way, joining the procession and blowing horns for the cause, panting with enthusiasm to reform the world willing to teach me how to put the movement on a social or sound, practical, and economic basis. They were going to get vast contributions so that money would roll unceasingly into our coffers. But if they lacked the necessary patience and forbearance, or were there for personal aggrandizement, they became discouraged at the first show of thorny, 
disagreeable obstacles, retreating or deserting rather than fighting through. In the birth control movement, supporters have come and gone. When they remained, they found work, 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 and little recognition, reward, or gratitude. Those who desired honor or recompense, or who measured their interest by this yardstick, are no longer here. It is no place for anything except the boundless love of giving. Blossom was the first illustration to me that the ones to whom authority is handed over are likely to expand and explode unless they have selflessly dedicated themselves. Now, I believe the three chief tests to character are sudden power, sudden wealth, and sudden publicity. Few can stand the latter. Nothing goes to the head with more violence. Seeing this all around me, I did not subscribe to a clipping bureau until it seemed necessary for historical purposes. I did not even read the papers when unsought advertisement was great, remembering that this could be but a nine days wonder. Furthermore, news items were often distracting because the facts were constantly embroidered just to make a good story, to paint a situation according to the policy of the paper, or because they reflected the inhibitions of the reporters. Ours could have been entirely given over to denials and contradictions. In the midst of any emergency, such as a police raid or the stopping of a meeting, my own emotions generally kept an even tenor. They did not go hopping up and down like a temperature. A nurse cannot afford to lose her head, and the control I had won in that training helped me, as did also my father's philosophy, since all things change, this too shall pass. Consequently, during this feverish period, neither public praise nor public blame affected me very much, although the type of criticism that came from friends was different just because they were friends and I wanted them to understand. I was unhappy if they did not. But since persons one likes can have great influence and friendships take time, I refrained from making many new ones. Nevertheless, those I had then are as good today. When we meet, we pick up the threads where we drop them. The war halted the progress of the birth control movement temporarily. The groups that had before been active now found new interests. The radicals were convulsed and their own ranks torn in two by the opposition to conscription. Influenza swept over the world and in its passage took off many of our old companions. Governor Whitman's promised commission blew up. One bright bugle sounded when I learned that the section on venereal disease in what every girl should know, which had once been banned in the New York call and for which Fania had been fined, was now, officially but without credit, reprinted and distributed among the soldiers going into cantonments and abroad. 
At home, all felt there was little to do but wait until people came back to their senses. The review was the only forward step I could take at the time. Late in 1917, a new recruit was enlisted. Nobody ever knew Kitty Marion's true name. She had been born in Westphalia, Germany, and when she was 15, her father had whipped her once too often, and she had run away to England, where eventually she had headed a turn at a music hall. The London slums had aroused Kitty's social conscience, and she had abandoned her own career to enroll with Mrs. Pankhurst in the suffrage crusade, becoming one of the most determined of her followers. When put in jail, she set fire to her cell, chewed a hole in her mattress, broke the window, and upon being released, threw bricks at Newcastle Post Office. Seven times she went to prison, enduring four hunger strikes and 232 compulsory feedings, biting the hand that forcibly fed her. Since it was distasteful to the government to have any suffragette die in prison, Kitty, under the so-called Cat and Mouse Act, was once released to a nursing home until she should have strength enough to return to confinement. Friends visited her there, exchanged clothes with her, and she escaped. On another occasion, the Bishop of London personally begged her to give up her struggle. At the outbreak of war, the Pankhurst forces hustled her over to America rather than have her run the almost certain risk of deportation or internment. Selling the suffragette on the streets of London had been part of the initiation which duchesses and countesses and other noble auxiliaries to the Pankhurst cause had to undergo. Kitty had stood side by side with them. Since we had so experienced a veteran ready for service, we began to offer the review on the sidewalks of New York. Our more sober supporters objected, because they considered it undignified. But men and women from here, there, and everywhere passed through the commercial centers of New York, and this was a real means of reaching them. All of us took a hand, but Kitty was the only one who stood the test of years. Strong, stoutish, tow-headed, her blue eyes bright and keen in spite of being well on in her fifties, she became a familiar sight, morning, afternoon, and until midnight, workdays, Sundays, and holidays, through storms of winter and summer, she tried every street corner from Macy's to the Grand Central Terminal. But her favorite stand was 7th Avenue and 42nd Street, right at Times Square. In her own words, she was enjoying the most fascinating, the most comic, the most tragic, living, breathing movie in the world. Many people still think I must be Kitty Marion. Everywhere they say to me, I saw you 20 years ago outside the Metropolitan Opera House. You've changed so I wouldn't know you. Street selling was torture for me. 
but I sometimes did it for self-discipline and because only in this way could I have complete knowledge of what I was asking others to do. In addition, I learned to realize what possible irritations Kitty had to encounter. Notwithstanding the insults of the ignorant, the censure of the bigots, she remained good-humored. They said to her, You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought to be arrested, to be shot, to be in jail, to be hanged. Or, It's disgraceful, disgusting, scandalous, villainous, criminal, and unladylike. When someone asked, have you never heard God's word to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth? Kitty replied, They've done that already, and knowing her Apocrypha as well as her Bible, retorted in kind, Does it not say in Ecclesiasticus 16.1, Desire not a multitude of unprofitable children? During the war, it was astonishing how many men in and out of uniform, mistook birth control for British control. We don't want no British control here, they exclaimed. Kitty would correct them, birth control. Then someone would call, oh, that's worse. Who bought the review? This question was invariably asked, and the answer was, radicals, the curious, girls about to be married, mothers, fathers, social workers, ministers, physicians, reformers, revolutionaries, foreigners. A psychological analysis of reactions of passers-by when they saw the words birth control would have been interesting. I never could credit the power those simple words had of upsetting so many people. Their own complexes, as to what sex meant to them, appeared to govern them. Many were disappointed at its staidness. Some were highly indignant, others highly amused, regarding it as a joke. Some bought with the set faces of soldiers going over the top. Some looked and looked and then strolled on. Others walked by only to return with the money ready hastily stuff the magazine in their pockets and move away, trying to seem unconcerned. The majority bought with the utmost seriousness in the hope that it might solve their personal problems. Jail was the instant reaction of every new policeman on the beat. Kitty, who knew she needed no license, would contest the point with him while a crowd gathered but few of her arresters were familiar with the law in the name of which they hauled her off to the station. Time and again, my night's slumbers were broken to go and bail her out. J.J. was always able to have the case dismissed, but only after it had been argued and proved in our favor. Once, Charles Bamberger, the agent provocateur of the Society for the Suppression of Vice, who had brought about Bill Sanger's arrest, worked much the same ruse on Kitty. His society was supposedly designed to promote purity, which was, to its members, synonymous with good. But in order to do this, they induced people to break the law 
by appealing to their deepest human sympathies, a form of trickery not to be condoned by any moral code. Bamberger, on repeated visits to Kitty at our office, poignantly described the condition of his unfortunate wife, whose health depended absolutely on her getting contraceptive information. Anna's sense, like Fania Mendel's, was unfailing in recognizing such decoys. I never went against it. But in vain did she warn Kitty, who gave him the information. He had her arrested, and she was not allowed to tell in court the means by which he had obtained his evidence. She had to serve a term. Kitty's sentence did not have adequate publicity, but so violent was the war temper that in view of her German birth, even well-disposed newspapers practically ignored it. End of Chapter 20, Part 1